and I, and I, it amazes me that people generally don't understand this, even people who have been investing for years. When you put money in a savings account, uh, in a insured position or in a, uh, let's say, government money market fund or something, you're not trying to get growth. You're trying to avoid loss. And that's very appropriate. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else fill the wall up with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to another exciting episode of The Personal Wealth Coach, starring Jake and Jeff McClure. Together we are bald. <clears throat> well, that wasn't as exciting as I expected it to be. We, we're bearded. No, no. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are eco babbled, spouting, bald, bearded people, and that is our first disclosure. Yes. Uh, yes, we give bad puns as well. Very, sometimes extremely. Sometimes puns you can't get out of your head for the next year. You just groan constantly. It's horrible. Second disclosure given. This is the Personal Wealth Coach. It's also the name of an SEC-registered investment advisory firm. That's not a coincidence because the two guys in that firm and the two guys on this program are the same two guys. The The program predates the firm, but uh, at the firm level, we've got to give fiduciary investment advice. That's what we're signed up to do. What does that mean? It's got to be in the best interest of the client. Can't do that on the radio. We don't know who you are. There's privacy stuff involved. So what are we doing here? If we can't give you advice, why are we on the air? Hopefully, we're going to give you some education and not in athletics. We will be giving you, hopefully, some stuff that you can use in your decision-making process. Just because the firm's registered with the SEC doesn't mean that the SEC, a firmly um, disapproving government authority, is going to somehow give us some kind of a thumbs up. Nope, that's just our regulatory agency. They don't approve. They don't attaboy um, kudos or any other form of pats on the back, shoulder, or head. Um, They are required to come and check people out. It doesn't mean if you haven't been caught that you haven't done something wrong, but that's their job, to go out and find people. Okay, Um, let's see here. This uh, is not a paid-for program. We don't pay for this program. We're not paid to do the program either, which is some kind of weirdness when you're talking to economists. Why are you doing free work? Ah, Hopefully what we are providing on the air here is performing some kind of benefit long term to the listeners. And the very concept of capitalism as written by Adam Smith says that if we can improve ourselves and those around us, then everybody improves. Uh, There's a whole invisible hand in there too, but that would almost imply an invisible fly as well. So I wanted to... Yes, that's a very long-winded disclosure. You've got a disclosure to add now. The information we present on this radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. There, well done. Now we have disclosed all of our disclosures to say that uh, we are not closed about anything. We're open. Why don't they just call them openings? So they're at the beginning of the program. They're disclosures. It's like we're un- unclosing the door for you here. <laughs> okay. All right. Inquisitor John, our most faithful questioner. 
questions us about everything. His uh, subject was show question, doom loop. Why are the big banks not invested in commercial real estate like medium-sized banks? And what is indirect lending? He's got an article headline from the Wall Street Journal, real estate doom loop is a threat. Uh, there's a circled area. Um, and it, in that circled area, it talks about regional and community banks dominating the commercial real estate lending market uh, and how that started after the 2008 financial crisis when the big banks reduced their exposure there. They stopped investing in loans to commercial real estate at the same level. So his question is, why did they do that? Uh, you had you had uh, an answer pre-prepped, I believe, Elder Baldy. What was your, because I can get the indirect lending side if you want to get the, okay. why, why the, is it this, why, why is it medium-sized banks are doing this, this? There was this event in 2008 and 2009 that most people have forgotten about by now, where the big banks did a lot of lending, it was indirect lending, which Jake is going to talk about mostly, to people who wanted to have real estate companies and who wanted to build houses and who wanted to borrow money to buy the houses. It was very lucrative. It was a very profitable business. It was going really, really strong. And then the bottom fell out from under it because it was a bubble. It was a classic bubble. Uh, and the banks got their hands slapped by the Federal Reserve and the FDIC and the comptroller of the currency and said, the big banks said, and they said, don't do that no more. Don't you ever do that again. And so the big banks have shied away from real estate lending. They do some, but not a lot. Uh, and they're very conservative about it. However, the regional banks and the smaller banks during this time period that we've been through of very, very, very low interest rates really wanted to be able to earn some interest and have a difference between the price, the, the interest rate they charged when they loaned money and the interest rate they were paying people who had money deposited. That's where they make their main profit. So they loaned a lot of money on real estate loans because real estate loans tend to be higher interest than personal loans. And they have, as a result, a fairly large real estate portfolio held in, in medium and smaller banks. And here's the problem with that. Commercial real estate, I mean. Here's the problem with that. If somebody doesn't uh, pay on their mortgage and the bank has to go out and foreclose on the property, the property will likely sell at a very low price. The bank will lose some money, but they'll get some money back. But the process of doing that causes the price of the other real estate they have in the same geographic area to go down because they're comparing sale prices and the sale price of the real estate that they have loaned to somewhere else nearby drops. And at some point, they what, they get into this thing where the more they foreclose, the lower the prices go. And the lower the prices go, the worse their financial situation gets and the more they have to foreclose on. And this dates all the way back to the uh, banking crisis in the early 1990s and other times when we've had these banking crises. Uh, this is, it's a terrible thing to see happen. And there's a real sincere, dedicated effort by banks and by the people who supervise banks to try to see what they can do to keep that from happening. And it's, it's going on very specifically. If you actually read the Wall Street Journal or any other similar publication, you will note that there's little stories about such and such a building or such and such a uh, real estate owner decided to simply let the bank foreclose on the building yeah so rather than paying the payments there there are and you mentioned this but I'm I'm gonna kind of give it some more detail in commercial real estate let's let's back up a little bit commercial real estate loans have higher interest rate 
than a normal personal mortgage. Why, why is that? Well, the failure to pay on a mortgage is less likely than the failure to pay on a business loan. Well, why? Here's a quick and easy answer. Elon Musk, when he bought Twitter, now X, what did he do with all the contracts? I mean, he had valid contracts with banks and, uh, and landlords and all kinds of things, and he decided not to pay them, not because he was short on money, but because he wanted to cut costs. So now there's a bunch of lawsuits coming against us. Well, lawsuits are expensive. Foreclosures are expensive. If uh, And I've seen this in my career. You sure certainly seen it in your career. Somebody sells a business and they sell it to somebody who buys it and then the business fails two years later. Or someone's in business doing well and they have a midlife crisis and the business fails. Well, what does that mean if you have a real estate loan to that business? Well, it's going to not get paid. There are lots of folks in small businesses that their personal finances are tied directly to those loans, and those loans tend to get paid. How's that for weird? The loans that are owned by the owners of the business, the loans that are made to the owners of the business for the business tend to get paid. So small business loans have been relatively profitable for a long time for small banks. Small banks have been usually the only ones to give loans to small businesses because a big bank really can't be bothered to send somebody corporate to go investigate a little business where a little bank has the time to do that. This is the old traditional model. So commercial loans at the small business level have traditionally been regional banks, little ones to medium size. After the global financial crisis, which wasn't a big smash against commercial real estate. It was a big smash against residential real estate. But regulatory authority went up and regulations had to be followed. And the big banks saw that if they got concentrated in commercial loans, the risk there was too high for the regulators to bear. So they lowered their exposure there. They still loan, but they have taken a very back seat to the regional banks that are giving those loans out. Well, now the regional banks are the ones holding this commercial real estate debt. And we've had multiple bad things happen to commercial real estate. Number one, the pandemic. That was not friendly to commercial real estate at all. Um, there were a lot of grants and loans and uh, paycheck programs, paycheck protection program, which was intended to pay mortgages and rent, but it didn't cover the whole time period. There were other loans that came out. And okay, so now we have a whole bunch of folks that were mostly able to pay their mortgage and rent during this time period. But then everybody starts working from home. And when we come back after the pandemic, we still have the majority of big companies have a large number of their employees not working at a physical location that's controlled by the company. Well, if they can do without that real estate, it's an expense they don't have to do. Now they're starting to say, well, maybe we need to get everybody back in. A lot of, a lot of companies are enforcing that. But we have the big vacancies now throughout downtown locations. In the middle of that during the pandemic, prime real estate markets changed. San Francisco, Portland, and Seattle were, were the top of the real estate market. They were the places that people talked about affluence and localized inflation. And the only people that walked downtown were wearing Rolexes. Well, that's changed in a very drastic, very 
drastic manner in the last three years. The real estate values in downtown San Francisco have dropped through the floor. Well, why? Because there's a homeless population there and there's crime there. And well, what's happened? Well, the pandemic and all the things that were attached to it. Uh, the rising homeless population, rising crime in the inner cities, all the things that happen throughout history whenever there's a plague. Every every plague in history has had this happen. We can point at individual policies and wax eloquent about how you know Austin should have done this or Houston should have done that. Or what you're going to find out is it really doesn't matter. The big city, the homeless homeless population is up. It doesn't matter who's what political pop party is in charge there. The homeless population is up. Uh, it's a plague thing. What does that do to real estate values in downtown compared to the golden era when there weren't people sleeping outside the front door? It's not good. So you put this together with rising interest rates, which means the balloon notes on these, a personal mortgage can go for 30 years. Commercial loans tend to go for like 10 years, and then they have to either refinance or pay back all the principal. That's a big responsibility. That means a third of the way through the loan, you got to look around and find another financer or refinance with the current one. And that means that your payment is about to go up. If you're a company, it's going to go up a lot because you have an interest rate from 10 years ago, which is like 4% or 5%. And it's about to be 8% or 10%. Yep. Those are real numbers that I just quoted. That is not fiction. <laughs> we got a big, big upgrade in the price at the same time that the actual value has fallen. So what is that going to do to the market? It's pretty obvious. It's not a good thing. So looking around at these middle-sized banks, what's going on there? What, what are the safety nets for the banks at these failures? Well, number one, there's a big look at the reserve side. That's already been covered. When SVB failed, when the First Republic failed, the Federal Reserve allowed banks to take cash for their long-term treasury notes at the value of maturity. That means they have enough pure cash sitting in the bank that if there's a run on the bank, they can handle it. They also have enough that if they start to have their loans go bad, the underlying value of the of the collateral. So if there's a piece of property in downtown San Francisco and they've got a loan on it and the loan stops getting paid, well they foreclose. Now they have a piece of property that they don't want to sell today. If they go to sell today, it's going to really mess them up. What happened in the 1990s, you made a great reference to this. Um, the Resolution Trust Corporation was put together um, by the George H.W. Bush's team and the hangovers from Ronald Reagan's team. It was a company devised by Congress and the executive branch to buy up bad loans that savings and loans um, companies had given to commercial real estate ventures. So this was the last big commercial real estate failure, and it was really big. So the Resolution Trust Corporation went out and bought up all the properties that were underwater, essentially, that the banks or the savings and loans were holding, couldn't sell because nobody wanted to buy them. Resolution Trust Corporation came and bought them. 
And everybody said, this is a horrible, horrible government bailout. Why are the Republicans doing this? They're against bailouts. This is the reason we had a uh, no deficit in 2000 during the Clinton administration, because the Resolution Trust Corporation began selling those properties when the property value went up again and wound up making a tremendous amount of money that it put back into the coffers of the United States government, which at the same time we had capital gains tax down and it gave us a surplus in the year 2000. We had a surplus that went into the George W. Bush administration too and it came mostly from the Resolution Trust Corporation. That was the difference, enough to put us over. So is that something that's likely to happen again? Big question. Don't know. Um, we may not have the kind of commercial bank or commercial real estate failure that it looks like we're going to have, but it doesn't look good. It really doesn't look good for commercial real estate right now. The last thing is what's indirect lending. Let me quick say that. Go ahead. Uh, in in the mortgage world pre global financial crisis, it was the mortgage broker. They weren't. They didn't work for the bank. They got a commission. So they're a third party who's not connected to the loan, who's facilitating the loan. The same thing happens when you're at a car dealership and you need a loan on your car, and the dealer calls 14 different places and says, this is what's available. Well, they're actually working through a broker now. It's the car broker, but it's also a loan broker. You're not talking directly to the lender, and that kind of pushes the risk further out. There's another way, you know, commercial Real estate loans don't really have mortgage brokers as much as the mortgage market did for the private side before. But they do have large corporations that, in essence, function the same way. They get loans from regional banks to give loans for commercial property, and then they sell on the mortgages to the regional banks. So that is, there's some extra danger there. And that whenever you remove risk from the people that are taking the risk, when you remove the ability to see the risk is there, people get surprised by it for some reason. Uh, yes. One of the things uh, our family, my wife recently bought a car and she was looking, at, she actually worked through the dealer to get the loan because they were offering a better rate. The dealer is obviously not the bank. Right. There is a classic indirect loan. There's another classic indirect loan if you borrow from a credit union. A credit union doesn't is not a depository institution. It doesn't hold its own money. It deposits the money at a bank every night. The bank effectively is making the loan through the credit union. And if you have gone to buy cars or anything recently, you know, so credit unions are offering generally speaking, a lower interest rate on a loan than the banks are, which should be slightly alarming. Uh, but the, the point is, no bank loan officer interviewed you or looked at your application or anything else. The, uh, the And when you have that happening, there is the potential for a problem, and it's happening a lot. We have lots more to talk about. We have barely even scratched the surface of things we have to talk about. Uh, one of the big things we both had to talk about this week was China. China. Uh, would you like to lead the conversation on that, or would you like me to start with one of my stories? Well, I can lead if you'd like. Um, China's in a hurt. It's in a hurt a lot of different ways. It avoided the 2008-2009 recession by building what are called ghost cities, and they spent a lot of money doing that, and seemed to have recovered from it nicely, and they cruised along, and they continued, and they have continued to grow. China has had amazing growth over the last several decades. It is uh, 
an amazing thing to come from a backwards agrarian society uh, where the ox was still commonly in use and is still in some places in China, to the modern China driving electric self-driving vehicles or being in electric nearly self-driving vehicles that we see today in urban China. It is it has grown phenomenally. But that growth was based on the fact that the government said we will remain nominally communist, but we're going to allow you capitalists just to take off and run with it and do whatever you can as long as you don't threaten us. Well, they've cracked back down now. Xi doesn't believe in that, and he has basically crunched some of the biggest companies and the biggest billionaires in China into non-existence. And during the pandemic, when it finally hit China, they delayed it quite a lot. They were locking down cities and areas, and the people weren't getting food. It was their riots. And finally, he relented and let people run around, and then a lot of people got COVID. And it was expected, generally, that China would come back strong like the United States did after the pandemic lockdowns, because they had been, the the people in the in the apartments and in the houses and wherever had been under quarantine and not able to go out and buy anything. They would go out and buy a lot. Well, it boomed a little bit and then it fizzled. And there's a couple of major issues going on. And I've read about this in several places. I've no, I don't claim to speak Mandarin, but I have certainly read uh, articles by people who live in China and who do speak Mandarin. There was an unwritten con- contract between the leaders of the Chinese Communist Party and the people in China that they would put up with the very restrictive, draconian uh, lack of freedom of speech and a lot of the other freedoms that people tend to want to have, as long as the government kept making them prosperous. And it did, and it did a good job. And The government focused really, really hard on exports. It focused on exports to the United States and Europe. Well, fast forward to the present. A couple of big things are happening. They, the, the real estate sectors in China borrowed money and built a lot of housing, a lot of uh, multifamily housing, apartment buildings, and so on. And in many cases, they're literally at this point in China are not enough people in those towns to fill the apartments because they're, they're, they're moving to the bigger cities and their population is shrinking. The combination of the two has left a lot of empty buildings and companies owing a lot of money to banks that they can't pay. Secondly, the contract was broken during the pandemic. People were literally starving in cities because the government would, allow, would not allow them to have food delivered. And when they finally, the government arranged for delivery of food, in some cases it was rotten. Uh, this spread around very quickly. And so people are scared. They're scared of their government. They're scared of the economy suddenly crashing again. Uh, They are scared, so they're not spending money. As a result, China is slipping into deflation, and there's a lot of overdue loans out there. The largest real estate developer on the planet, Evergrande, declared bankruptcy, and a lot of people didn't get paid their money back. And uh, Country Garden was overdue by 30 days on paying a lot of dollar-denominated debt. They finally paid it the last minute, and they probably borrowed the money to pay, which is not a good thing. So we see evidence that the economy is in trouble there, a lot of evidence that the economy is in trouble. Uh, the unemployment rate for those between 18 and 26 in China was Last report we got, it was 26%. But the way Chairman Xi chose to address that problem was ordered the state uh, employment statistics organizations to stop collecting the data and publishing it. Yeah. So there's no longer unemployment among age 20 to 26 because nobody is studying it and reporting it, so it doesn't exist anymore. Correct. And you know that's that's you know that's, that's, that's a good way to fix any problem. And 
So what we're seeing in China is deflation, prices coming down, people hoarding their money, uh, the all the harbingers of a depression approaching, and it doesn't look at all good in China. And here's the here's the problem with that. China has been building their military tremendously over the years, and they are integrated in the rest of the world. Although uh, one other element I want to mention here is Western companies have stopped their investment in China, which is, by the way, the source of much of the money that has been causing China to grow mightily, is Western European and U.S. companies investing by building factories in China. Apple probably leads the way on that. Yeah. And which having their this week goods, be an important part of the story. Yes. Had their goods manufactured in China and then sold them here. Or parts that they assembled here were manufactured in China. They built plants to do that. There was a lot of capital infusion from the United States into the Chinese economy that enabled it to grow. Well, with the hostilities that are racking up between us and China, or between China and us, they have decided that we're not going to do that anymore. And the fact that, as Jake has pointed out on many occasions, if you if you patent something in the United States and you patent it around the world, and then you go to assemble it in China, the Chinese are notorious for stealing the technology, repatenting it in China under a Chinese name and beginning to manufacture it. And their courts simply won't hear foreigners who want to sue on that. So you have to be represented. You, yeah. You have to be represented by a Chinese company in the court. And if you, if you've got uh, something that you have invented like the iPhone, if you were the folks who invented the iPhone and the company being Apple, and you have the Chinese make it and you think you've got a good deal with China and they're not going to copy it or anything. And then Huawei comes out with a copy of the iPhone that is selling when the government says no more iPhones allowed in government facilities, government owned facilities or strategically important facilities anywhere in China. Well, just this, to, just to let you know, most of the banks are state owned. Um, mm -hmm. State owned means something different there than it does here. When we say, "Hey, the Pentagon isn't allowing Huawei phones," it's different when then because that means IBM is still gonna. You could still have a Huawei phone at your IBM office, but in China, if you have an Apple phone and you're in Huawei, well, the government has just shown that they have a great deal of control at Huawei. It's partially state owned uh, at, mm -hmm. at any of the companies there. I mean. It, it's just not a good thing. It's bad, bad, Boy, bad. Every way you look at it. Here's the danger. The effective emperor of China for life, Chairman Xi, has stated that he wants to take back Taiwan, if necessary, by force, and that he will do it in the not-too-far-distant future. If China faces an economic crisis, there are hundreds of millions of people who would get very angry and not have jobs. And that is something that I'm sure he fears dramatically. Uh, he hasn't taken the necessary actions to spur the economy back up, to loosen things up, to get the economic juices running again. He has taken plenty of action to remove anybody from any position of authority that's not totally loyal to him. A wounded and dying China probably would come to the conclusion that they have nothing to lose by invading Taiwan. And that would really wreck the apple cart in the world economy. Because we are, whether we like it or not, the United States is thoroughly invested in China. Yeah. We have a, a lot of companies in the United States have a great deal of capital tied up in China. If that suddenly were to vanish, it would definitely hurt those companies. It would definitely hurt a lot of things we do in the United States. We still import a lot from China. And although that's going down, we're not building new factories there. Eventually, it will wind itself up. But in the meantime, there's a real threat right there. Yeah, and there's, there's more going on there. The growth perspective for China is definitely a lot lower than it was even a year ago. Uh, the 
exit of many of the companies causing the growth rate to fall there unemployment in a kind of a prime working age it's it's not a good situation we've got more to talk about on that subject there's a, a lot more to talk about on that subject but we're almost out of time for this hour uh, we've got lots more to talk about across china we've got uh, mortgage rates to talk about we've got all kinds of good stuff um uh, i had a quick thing i wanted to throw in there um strange piece of political technology stuff Political technology. Germany and the UK are looking at energy efficiency differently, the governments there. Uh, the fact that their energy prices have gone up so much more than ours have because of Russia is part of this. Uh, and I have spoken recently about technology changes, the heat pump, solar, different kinds of batteries, things like that. Heat pump Technology has advanced very, very quietly into the realm of almost magic. Um, it can now produce heat on site in your house more efficiently than burning natural gas directly in a boiler. So it's more efficient to burn the natural gas at a power plant to produce power and then lose some of that energy in the transmission across the power lines to your house and then do the heat pump thing and it produces heat more efficiently than the actual burning of the natural gas to produce heat. Now, that may seem like, well, no big deal. What's the big deal there? It's a big deal. That is a new thing. It's never existed before on the planet. We are now able to transfer heat from the air and out of the air in a way that produces better heat than fire. <laughs> That's huge. Well, the governments are getting involved now. And anytime that happens, you're going to have a backlash. So one of the issues with a heat pump, it is more efficient. It's really cool. But if you have a boiler for natural gas, it takes up less space than a heat pump does. And in Germany and in the UK, that has more impact than here. The houses in the UK and in Germany are not on the same scale as the houses in the United States. It's hard to find places to put heat pumps. And the UK has a pretty draconic law that's going through that's saying if you're going to do any kind of an upgrade on a boiler, um, you need to use a heat pump. Germany also has some rules, but they're a lot more lax. In the UK and in Germany, heat pumps have to go in with ins extra insulation, too. you got to fix air leaks and so on, and the age of the construction there is much, much older. So now we're getting into politics for real. In order to upgrade, you got to do this new technology. This is the thing you hear people complaining about. California saying in five years, all new cars got to be electric. Anytime the government starts dictating to the market, you're going to have a backlash, period. You're going to have people that backlash even when they're not affected. People are angry in Texas about the law in California. You don't live in California. It's not a big deal. Well, somebody's going to make us do it here. Probably not. There's not the kind of vote across the nation to cause Congress to change a law that requires this yet. Germany, yes. The UK, maybe. They're doing this with heat pumps. Heat pumps are likely to be a much more city-based political kerfluffle here. Anytime you have a new technology and government says, hey, we have to support this, you get stupid. There's stupid that happens. and You can't 
fix stupid sometimes. Uh, it is a better technology, no doubt. Government regulations will make it seem not so. <laughs> this is true in California. It's true in Germany. It's true in the UK, and it's true everywhere. So just well, be aware that politics and new technology go hand in hand, and you'll take this beautiful thing and turn it into not so beautiful. Just be ready. It's kind of like the size of the toilet tank. Yeah. It'll take years, but there are sufficient um, carrots and sticks in existence that I think we will see new heat pumps a lot and old-fashioned yeah. heaters a lot less. Yeah, and that's just going to happen. The same For the same reason that the icebox isn't what you see in most people's kitchen anymore. Regardless of governmental regulations on the efficiency of your refrigerator, it's still better than an icebox. And if you, you could get an icebox, you don't have to pay all the extra price for having all of the Freon regulations that we have for your refrigerator. But most people still get the refrigerator because it is a better technology. And I think that's going to be the way this goes forward. I just wish government would take a less drastic approach on new technology and say, let's let it figure itself out first. Because if battery technology is the same as it is today in five years, California is going to have a lot of long distance drivers that aren't buying new cars or that go to other states to buy new cars. Battery, battery technology will increase. It will get better. It already is. It's not publicly available yet. They ha it takes more than five years for that to hit the market. So we're going to have some unhappy people in California, and they may change that law. It's just most likely going to happen. Uh, why are we covering politics on economics? Because politics so often comes in and makes it hard to figure out what's actually happening. Uh, the technology is there for more efficient solar, more efficient wind, more efficient natural gas. And we're seeing those changes. Natural gas replaced coal. It's probably not going to be completely replaced by wind and solar until we have cheaper batteries. Just going to be. We're getting to the point where solar and wind is less expensive than natural gas. That has nothing to do with politics. It's just the technology is getting better. And at some point, we'll have no more plants that burn natural gas if we have bigger and bigger batteries that have better technology. But we're not there yet. So when people talk about the glowing optimism about technology of the future and the government goes, oh, well, then we'll require that. <sighs> Guys, <laughs> sorry, I, I know it's an oxymoron to talk about Congress and progress and being in the same boat because they are opposites of each other. Uh, but the same is true in legislatures across the world. So let us all know that we can be grumpy together as a world. But in the meantime, if you would like to talk to us off the air, we do give personalized, customized fiduciary advice. That's what we actually do when we're not blathering on on the radio about things uh, we blather on about other things, and then we get paid for it there because we're fee-based uh, fiduciary advisors, and we do um, investment and portfolio management for our clients. And I know this is weird. We're putting a plug for ourselves in here. But if you'd like to talk to us off the air, uh, you can uh, reach our office locally. There's real live people during the week and fake people in a voicemail type system during the weekend. Uh, you can At reach that line. Locally. 254 947 1111. 
And you can reach that toll-free should you still have a landline at 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com, tpwc.com. You will see our famously made for radio faces, our wonderful staff. You can read our newsletter and sign up for it there. It's free. Uh, I think it's pretty good. You can uh, listen to our radio programs there or podcasts. Uh, those are podcasts are also available anywhere. Podcasts are available. Uh, we um, also can be contacted through the contact form or email us directly at jeff at tpwc.com and jake at tpwc.com.